This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. This week, are migrants now being used as a new weapon? Plus, is the war between the palace and the Sussexes escalating? And finally, why is the mullet making a comeback? First up, in our cover story this week, our political editor Jane Forsyth looks at the growing troubles in Eastern Europe and how this small part of the world stage could end up splintering the scaffolding of global peace. He joins me now along with columnist for The Independent, Mary Dzhevsky. James, in your cover piece this week, you start by outlining Joe Biden's foreign policy objectives. What exactly are they? So I think there, I think there are two. One is to kind of revive the US-led alliance system that's so atrophied under Donald Trump. And the second is to kind of clear the decks to essentially counter the Chinese bid to build regional hegemony in Asia. And given that Asia is going to be the cockpit of the 21st century, that is a kind of vital US objective. You mentioned in your piece that the Allies are going to need to pick up the slack. Where exactly is that likely to be? Well, I think the US essentially needs its allies to do more in the Middle East, Europe, Africa, because countering the, 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 the Chinese threat is going to take a kind of the bulk of US military forces as a kind of deterrence objective. There. And so I think what you've, you've seen in, in the last week or so with the US kind of warning to Europe about what Russia might or might not be planning in Ukraine is an attempt to say you need to be prepared and ready for this. I think Washington is haunted by what happened with Crimea when Russia essentially annexed territory and all the West could do was to impose sanctions after the fact. Mary, James says that it's never easy to read Putin's intentions. What do you think he wants at the moment? Well, I think he's probably looking on as puzzled as practically the rest of the world at what's going on. Because one of the things I found most interesting about um, James's article is actually that he puts it in this global context, in the framework of a Biden foreign policy that is focused on China and gets everybody else to pick up the slack elsewhere. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But I think Putin will be picking up very, very mixed signals because behind the scenes there's been a lot of rapprochement going on between the Americans and the Russians. And there's actually, I think there's a summit planned for some time in the quite near future, a second summit. So that's happening on the one hand. On the other hand, suddenly there's this sort of blizzard of very cold warrior-like statements about Russia massing all these troops near the border of Ukraine in preparation to invade Ukraine. And I think, I mean, Putin has very unusually, he's actually denied that. Normally, Russians wouldn't pay any attention. As Mary says, James, you mentioned China and Russia. Are their interests somehow mutually aligned at the moment? I, I think Putin is a is a is a tactical opportunist, and I think that the, the Chinese threat is distracting the U.S. And I think that there is I think this is one of the things the U.S. is worried about is that Russia will try things on, believing that the U.S. is distracted. I think it's become a kind of view in in foreign policy circles that you know if China ever did invade Taiwan. Russia might well march into eastern Ukraine. And it's worth remembering there is an essentially informal Russian presence in eastern Ukraine already. These militias there that essentially hold territory are heavily Russian 
fact. And I think one of the things that is looked at by Western foreign policy analysts is look at what happened in Crimea, where you've had a very similar situation. You had an informal Russian presence that then at an opportune moment Putin sought to formalise. And so I think the question is, where, I think there is a worry about whether he'll do that again. I think one of the specific worries about this troop build-up, because like Mary, I thought the Blinken warning was so stark. To have a US Secretary of State essentially say, we think there might be going to be a war in Europe is, is not small potatoes. And, but when I asked around about why this is, one of the things I was given is that previous Russian troop build-ups on the Ukrainian border have been almost performative. They have been openly done in kind of maximum daylight with, you know, social media and all these kind of things designed to basically say, look, we are massing. I think a lot of the, 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 the more serious stuff that has been moved up to the border has been moved at night and the like. And I think that is one of the things that is causing concern, that this has been done with a bit more subtlety and feels a bit less performative than some previous Russian troop build-ups. I think there's two issues that I probably question here, because I think what James has said actually reflects two gigantic misreadings of Russia, not just at the moment, but in 2014. I think at the moment, the idea that Russia is in a sort of offensive stance or offensive mode, not just with a view to Ukraine, but with a view to other places, is simply wrong. I think that very often, and this time is included, Russia is actually reacting to something that other people are doing. And what it's reacting to this time is the fact that there have been exercise after exercise with various participants, but invariably with Ukraine, in the Black Sea. And there was the provocation with HMS Defender of the Royal Navy back in June, where they tried to sort of graze the Crimean coast in order to make a great demonstration. Russia looks at those things, and Russia thinks that it needs to be prepared. It's not a question of the US and Europe being prepared. It's a question of Russia being prepared for whatever. And they see the West and NATO in particular as wanting exclusive control of the Black Sea and using Ukraine to get it. That's the first thing. Second thing is the misreading, as I see it, of 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. Yes, Russia annexed Crimea and, as it puts it, reincorporated it into Russia. But to my mind, that was a complete one-off. It's not a precedent. And the reason it was a one-off was, again, because Russia was largely in defensive and rather paranoid mode, because what it was looking at in Ukraine was potentially the loss of its single warm water port and naval base in Sevastopol, because it saw a Western-backed coup toppling a an elected leader in Ukraine. And the next move, as Russia saw it, was that you were going to have NATO troops in Sevastopol. To my mind, that Russia's perception of its national security is what 2014 was about, and it sets no precedent for anything. Look, there's a kind of long-running argument about who is who is the aggressor, who is not the aggressor. And, and I think I mean, you know, that we probably would take longer than this podcast to resolve. I think that what is undoubtedly true, though, is that Ukraine is a territory with deep cultural splits within it. You essentially have a de facto system of partition at the moment in eastern Ukraine with an informal line of control. And on one side of that line of control are essentially Russian-backed militias, and on the other side are the Ukrainian forces. I don't think worrying about whether Russia might try and formalise that relationship, I think makes some sense, especially given the ways in which Putin 
talks about Russia, greater Russia. And, and, and so I think that those are there. And then I think if you look at this, you see what's going on in the Western Balkans, you see what is going on on the Ukraine border, and you see what is going on with Belarus. Now, we can debate to what extent Lukashenko is or isn't Putin's control. Someone said, I think the, probably the best description I've had heard of him is that you know he's, he's Putin's problem child. But Russia, again, is not above the performative act. It was not a de-escalatory move for Russia to drop paratroopers on uh, the Belarusian side of the border at the moment. It wasn't a de-escalatory move to fly nuclear-armed bombers around there. One of the tensions you have got here is... Putin feels that Russia is entitled to a near abroad. Russia is entitled to a space where it is not, where, where, you know, where, which essentially acts as a buffer between Russia and the West. The West does not accept that. The West does not see why Russia should be entitled to this near abroad space. And Even as it expects to have its own near abroad space and the fact that the United States has the luxury of sea around practically every single border, an enormous trouble on its one contested land border, at least contested in terms of migration with Mexico. I think there is a big double standard there. Look, America has unique advantages of geography. That is certainly true. But the, the, the point I think that, that we see here is, is this tension about what Russia is entitled to, in inverted commas. And I think you see this, you know, you see from the, the actions this week, you can see the tensions ramping up. You've got the UK basically saying, we're prepared to loan the Ukrainians money to buy more military kit. And, and, and But I think the other point that with this is coming down to here is that there is going to be a big moment when Angela Merkel leaves the European diplomatic stage because she has pushed avoiding confrontation I think with Russia would be you know and she has supported Nord Stream 2 which I, I think would be a bad idea because it would increase dependence on, on, on Russian gas and you saw from I think it was very, very Merkel like the decision to call Lukashenko this week to try and kind of de-escalate the situation, which I think is a mistake. I think he is. I think that's one of the things he wants. But I think one yes, of... but I think that's also a slight misreading because I think the reason why Merkel may have rung Lukashenko rather than anybody else is not just because of her sort of commanding position in Europe, but also because essentially she's a leader at the moment without a country, and she her formal position will actually she won't be in it no, no, um, after so. She's got no political capital either to win or to or lose, lose by no. calling Lukashenko. And it's not a political point necessarily for Lukashenko to be called by an outgoing leader with no but, mandate. I, mean, I, think, I think if you if you look at the, the how Belarusian TV portrayed it, they certainly think that this is this is a feather in their cap. You know, since he clamped down on the opposition following the election there, you know, he has not had a single conversation with a Western leader. Now I totally take Mary's point that, that Andrew Merkel is an outgoing leader, but he has spoken to the most important leader in Europe. But I think what we see here is, is, that, is this fundamental geopolitical tension, which is Russia thinks it's entitled to a near abroad. The West does not think that, that Russia should, should have that control over other countries. And I think, I think this tension is only going to grow because I think Russia will see the, the US pivot to, to Asia and to China as providing an opportunity with it for it to push forward. And I think you will see Europe, and particularly led by the British, 
arguing that, you know, we, no, we mustn't allow this to happen in those circumstances. So I think there is going to be more tension. And I think that, you know, I, I would say watch the Western Balkans very closely because that, I think, is, a, it, it is an issue that could actually overtake both Ukraine and Belarus in terms of, in, in terms of its potential for trouble. Mary, what, what do you make of this idea that James mentions in his piece that migrants are now being weaponized and that the EU doesn't really have a way to respond to that? Well, I think that there are two things to be said about that. One, absolutely. I mean, Lukashenko has found the sort of neuralgic spot of the West currently and is using migrants to that effect. I mean, he's, he's basically sponsoring them to make difficulties on the border with Poland. The second question as to whether the European Union is capable of dealing with this, I think the fact that it's the Polish border complicates things. I think if it had almost any other border of the European Union, this might have been simpler. But as I understand it, and it's all incredibly complicated, as I understand it, Poland has actually not called for help from Brussels or the help that it has called for, it wants on its own terms. So it doesn't want Frontex, the forces, the very limited forces from Frontex, to come in and do whatever they might do to secure the border or to look after refugees or to process them or whatever. Poland doesn't want to do that. And in a way, Brussels doesn't really want to help Poland either because of the, because of the conflicts between Brussels and Poland on all sorts of other issues, including things like independence of the judiciary, the Polish constitution, all those things that are currently at issue between Brussels and Warsaw. So in a way, even though it's a, it's a sort of accident of ge- geography, but Lukashenko has actually chosen this point quite well. And it's interesting that he could have maybe chosen or it didn't work out. And maybe I think there were initial sort of forays with Lithuania, for instance, and that, that didn't work. But the border with Poland, because of Poland's position in the EU, because of the difficulties between Brussels and Warsaw, then it's a slightly different problem. And James, am I right in thinking that the UK has offered some support to Poland? The UK has sent a very small number, I think it's 10 troops to the border. I think, there is, I think there is an interesting question here, which is that we see this, you know, there have been lots of arguments that, that what Greece is doing to push back migrants goes against um, international law. I think the fact that the Polish government have banned all journalists and uh, NGOs, etc., etc., from the region suggests that they might not be in, um, in full compliance with international law. And, and, and I think what we see here is, is an interesting tension that is emerging because, I mean, this is a unique situation. I think, they, I think Lukashenko essentially looked at Ergodan and saw how Ergodan had used basically threatening to turn the migrant tap on or off. To, to essentially stay European criticisms of his turn towards authoritarianism or its kind of regional adventurism and thought, right, I want a bit of that. You know, he explicitly said before the sanctions were placed on him on Belarus after the, you know, that Ryanair flight was brought down, you know, I will flood Europe with drugs and migrants. Well, he's obviously chosen to, he's obviously trying to do it with migrants. I, I, think, that, I think the best way for uh, the West responders. You've already seen kind of the UK, Canada, the EU and the US kind of coordinate quite effectively on sanctions on batteries. I think they should aim to expand that alliance as much as possible and basically make the costs involved for any airline or any airline charter company of being used by batteries in this way so high that no one is prepared to, to, to play it. 
I think they're starting to do that. I mean, I think that all flights to Belarus from Istanbul, I think, were stopped a few days ago, and the same sort of pressure is being put on other places where the refugees, where, where, where the would-be migrants are flying from. What I think is also starting to happen is that the situation is slightly starting to rebound on Lukashenko, because so long as the, the, the migrants aren't let into Poland, and so long as they can't storm the border without terror of extreme bloodshed on either side and complete chaos, they basically remain Lukashenko's problem. I've seen something in the last couple of days that said Iraq was was going to fly in charter planes to try and fly its citizens back to Iraq. Now, you know, let's see whether that'll work, because anybody who's interviewed among those migrants said the last thing we're going to do is to go back to wherever we've come from. But the, but the problem, it seems to me, is so long as the Polish border holds out the problem becomes more and more Lukashenko's. So I think we may see it actually coming to a sort of natural end, that it'll fizzle out, that there will be, it'll be more difficult for the numbers to be added because of all the restrictions on airlines and transit. And to the extent that they're a problem increasingly for Lukashenko and not for the EU, then it may very well go away of its own accord. Marion James, thank you very much. Just a quick interjection here. If you're enjoying this podcast, we have a host of other podcasts available, including Table Talk, which I host with Olivia Potts. It's released every two weeks, and we're always joined by an interesting guest who tells us all about their life through food and drink. All the links are available in the description. Next up, will the monarchy survive past Elizabeth II? That's the question Freddie Gray asks in this week's Spectator. He joins me now along with Patrick Jefferson, a former private secretary to Princess Diana. Freddie, in this week's issue, you look at the war between the Sussexes and the palace. Does it seem to be intensifying? It does, and it comes at this sort of rather worrying moment for monarchists when the Queen seems to be stepping back a little further from public life, although typically no sooner had we just sent this <laughs> article to press than she appeared smiling at an engagement, uh, rather scuppering my point. But, I mean, the point is she is, you know, she is very old, she's 95, and it's inevitable that she's going to withdraw more from public life, and inevitably that draws the focus more onto Prince Charles, but also onto the younger royals. And the picture there is not good. In fact, it's quite ugly. There's an obvious conflict between Harry and his brother William, and things seem to be getting nastier. And as we saw in court last week, or as part of this legal case, it's actually starting to get daggers drawn, I'd say. Patrick, you're slightly more optimistic in this week's issue. You write a royal notebook. Do you think Freddie's wrong to think we should be worrying about the future of the monarchy after Elizabeth II? Well, I'm glad you see it as optimistic. It's not without hope, which is slightly different. I think Freddie hits it squarely on the head. There is, in presentational terms, to have a house divided against itself. That never ends well. And just to add a bit of context, I suppose, I see this very much in presentational terms. What we're seeing now is the the predictable outcome of the weaponization of palace PR, which began in the early 90s, and it was started by the Prince of Wales's advisers when they saw him losing so much ground to his wife, Princess Diana, it's that old joke, you know, uh, we're very unpopular, What's, what'll we do? We'll hire more press secretaries. 
if only people knew how nice we were. So that, you know, we go into a, a tell-all to Jonathan Dimbleby, um, which turned out to be disastrous. It is this marriage made in hell between the royal family and the PR industry. Is a bit of drama, though, not necessary, Fred, to help sustain an interest in the monarchy? And are they not then giving us exactly what we want? I think that is that this is a very difficult balance that the monarchy has to walk in this highly mediatized, fiercely democratic age is between generating engagement, interest, doing stories. And very often people talk about royal PR in these sort of very glowing terms because, you know, the monarchy is very popular and the mythology around the firm is kind of almost mafia-like but I think actually as Patrick says it is a marriage made in hell because it's an awful dance that they have to do and they only get sucked in more and more in towards celebrity world and when you look at Harry and Meghan you can see a couple that have really been driven mad by fame I think and are increasingly making these embarrassing plays for attention clear money grabbing to it just looks uglier and uglier. Patrick, having worked for the royal family, what do you make of Jason Knauf's decision to start to give evidence against Meghan? I think that it it actually shows him in a very good light. I think it's obviously a matter between him and his conscience, but the knowledge that you have covered up for your boss is never nice for somebody in his position. Advising members of the royal family is not for the faint-hearted, and it is, I think, very much to his credit that he is prepared now to disclose what he knows, particularly to draw attention to the hypocrisy that we see in his former boss, Harry and Meghan, but it's not restricted to them. Hypocrisy is the occupational hazard of the royal family, and it only becomes more dangerous the more they decide that they have important things to tell us in matters of public policy. And that is a huge risk that they run and they appear to be oblivious to it. Patrick, I did want to ask you, actually, I mean, as someone who knew Diana very well, people talk about how Harry and William have Spencer blood, which means they feud quite badly. Is there something in that? I think you'll find that (laughs) the Windsors are quite capable of feuding just using their own genes without borrowing anybody else's. I think a lot of what we see is an exaggerated version of what you may find in lots of families. The royal family has been called dysfunctional. I suppose in some ways it is very, very hard to try and run a family in the public eye as they do. What we also see, of course, is advisors feuding with advisors. And one of the problems of bringing in so-called media experts is that these are men and women with ambitions of their own. You realise when you come into work in a palace that you only have a limited length of time there. This could be a make or break for your career. Always looks good in the in the CV. So I think that the whole pernicious brew has been regularly stirred, continues to be stirred by feuding advisors. Courts have been like that for as long as history. Freddie, you make the point in your piece that all this cringe-inducing hoopla, as you put it, around Harry and Meghan is beneficial to William and Kate did you get the impression that that's quite helpful for them? Yes. I mean, I say in a creepy PR way it is, in the sense that the spinners around Catherine and William can sort of portray them as the dignified ones and the tabloids that are pretty anti-Harry and Meghan now, particularly as they've taken the mail to court and won, they are delighted to sort of paint this contrast between nice, demure Kate 
and awful, grubby Meghan. So I think it does help sort of paint William as a king in the making. I mean, he used to be this sort of reluctant royal figure, and now he's he seems to have settled into this role of future king. Patrick, you're speaking to us from Virginia. How is Meghan being received in America? Is she popular at all? Well, I think with a certain demographic, particularly young, especially female, and as you might say, woke, uh, she will always be popular. She has an invincible popularity, and it would be wrong to think that it's going to dissolve anytime soon. However, I think from a more thoughtful perspective, people are beginning to question what this Sussex business is all about, particularly once she started cold calling Republican senators to try and influence um, the passage of legislation (laughs) through the Congress and introducing herself apparently as Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, uh, which is wrong on several levels, but is unlikely to impress any American senator with any sense of, of history. So it's quite a revealing little episode that she sees herself as having something to contribute to the public debate, but also wants to invoke her royal status as in some way making her more important and cleverer or wiser or more knowledgeable than anybody else. I think this is something that that is quite telling. This might be the unravelling of their status with all but their most diehard fans. And there is a, a shift in mood in America, I think as the midterm elections approach next year, there is an increasing willingness to question received woke wisdom and Harry and Meghan are the standard bearers for that. I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I think when we launched Spectator in America, we did that cover saying sort of begging Americans to take her back. And then Americans did actually end up taking her back. And I think they want to get rid of Meghan now too. And it's very interesting that Meghan and Harry seem to believe that they can apply the way the British monarchy works in British life to America, which is a sort of ridiculous notion because it sits so badly with the basic ideas of what America is and what it's all about. Just finally, Freddie talks in this piece about the prospect of a kind of reconciliation. There have been various attempts at this. Do you think there's any chance of reconciliation between the two brothers at this stage? I think it's probably unlikely. It's always going to be a, a story that Spin Doctor is going to want to push. Reconciliation is great copy. And it would, of course, please monarchists. It would delight people who are genuinely pained to see the the brothers so divided. But I think where families are concerned, particularly this one, it would be wrong to be too optimistic about any kind of meaningful reconciliation. Something for the cameras? Maybe. But I think we we should expect there to be a continuing little drip of reconciliation stories. It's a lovely idea. I think that's absolutely right, Patrick, and I'm sure you know about this more than me, but I think there have already been two attempted photo-op reconciliations at the unveiling of the Diana statue and at Prince Philip's funeral. And both times they were sort of told that they were going to be photographed together, a lot of hype around it. And even though Prince Harry showed up, he vanished as soon as he could, and it was very, very frosty by all accounts. So, yeah, I think there'll be the reconciliations are a long way off. And Freddie, you sort of point out in your piece that Charles seems to be now siding with William, which presumably would make matters harder for a reconciliation. Yes, again, that's a way in which it's actually helped William to sort of emerge, is because I understand there have been lots of tensions in Clarence House between the sort of Kate and William gangs and the Charles gangs. Patrick will probably know a lot more about that than me. 
<laughs> well, I would just perhaps add there that this preoccupation with a slimmed-down monarchy, I think, uh, may be a blind alley. The idea that having fewer of them is going to make them more popular is fundamentally mistaken. What I think people want to see is a big, happy, busy royal family getting on with traditional royal stuff, comforting those who are sick and in need, unifying us with their hard work and sense of duty, and always impressing us with the enormous sacrifices they make in order to serve the country. If the royal family of any size got back to those basic principles, I think its PR problems would be over. But the idea that you're going to resolve that fundamental challenge just by having fewer of them on the palace balcony, I think is fundamentally mistaken. And in fact, you know, the, the big push for a slimmed down monarchy suggests a family that's not happy at all. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> years ago I put it at, you know, the idea of slimming down the monarchy, it's like bagging the last deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> Freddie and Patrick, thank you very much for joining. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And finally, the mullet. It's back. Hannah Moore says that its return is proof that true evil never dies. She joins me now along with Mike Lawson of Beard Brand, who's also noticed the return of this do. Hannah, in this week's issue, you write that the mullet is back in fashion, which you say is proof that true evil never dies. <laughs> when did you notice the mullet's return? Actually, embarrassingly late. When I started looking into this, I realised it was a trend that had been going on for at least a year. But living in East Sussex, not much happens in the way of fashion down there. So yeah, I went to a, a ball, just a local ball, last month. And it's, it's usually sort of older type people, you know, it's a charity kind of thing. But suddenly, all around me, there were young, really young people, clearly schoolboys, with these, like, serious mullets, like from the 80s films, you know. Amazing. And I, I started, I saw one, and then I started seeing, seeing them everywhere. And I, all of the older people, I include myself in that now, were just amazed and wondering what was going on here. Did you get a chance to speak to these boys about why they'd adopted this hairstyle? No, sadly I didn't because they were so, uh, you know, they were a a group of young boys who, you know, as a 30-something mother now, I find it's quite intimidating to go up to, you know, they're they're always kind of in their own group. So I should have, but I didn't, (laughs) no. Well, Mark, you've, you've also written about the mullet and you said that 2020 was the year of the mullet. So perhaps you can explain to us why they're fashionable. You're, you're speaking to us from Austin, Texas. So are they a big thing in America as well? They are. And I think depending on the circles that you run in would probably explain uh, if you had a little bit of early exposure to the resurgence of the mullet, particularly in American sports. I think the mullet's kind of been having a movement since... 2016 2017 but even you know even across the pond David Beckham was kind of one of the early proponents of bringing back the mullet uh, and, and we do see it quite a bit in soccer 
as well. And so, again, yeah, in Austin, where there's a pretty big country music scene as well, the mullet has long been synonymous with country music. So here in Austin or, or places like Nashville, there were some early adopters of bringing that back. Hannah, you say in your piece that it's quite a, obviously it's a statement haircut, but it's actually quite a rebellious haircut. Can you take us through that? Well, it's it's just so obviously saying something, isn't it? Because it's um, such a strange look. And where I come from, Montana, it would be associated with um, what we'd politely call rednecks. So you'd, you'd have the baseball cap, you know, and it's, it's either that or it's you're a, an edgy movie star, you know. And it's quite androgynous, I think. I think that's why the um, gay scene took it on in the 70s and 80s, because it's kind of toes the line between long women's long hair and men's short hair. Mm. So I think it, it's a statement piece depending on who's wearing it. So just seeing a bunch of tuxedoed boys, you know, black tie in southern England wearing it, that was quite a statement to me, and I, I just didn't know what it meant. <laughs> it kind of... Uh, makes its way across such a wide spectrum of wearers and it is such a diverse style in that you can have somebody like Rihanna who wears the mullet uh, and it might mean one thing to people who view it on Rihanna and then you have somebody like uh, a Morgan Wallen who wears the mullet and that you might have very different associations with it but it's uh, I think very few styles have such a, a wide breadth of their wares that it does make it, I think, very appealing. And there is that androgynous aspect to it that I think is very appealing to a younger generation as well. Hannah, as, as you point out in your piece, the look is hardly new. What did you discover when you were researching the mullet? Well, yes, it is kind of amazing because obviously the modern mullet as we know it came from the kind of 70s and 80s films and things like that. But... It, it has been known in uh, previous centuries and uh, notably Procopius in, is it what, 6th century? We have evidence that, um, that he was writing and complaining, yeah, complaining about Roman charioteers who were wearing their hair short in the front and then long in the back, as he says, in a senseless fashion. And I just thought that was so funny that he, he feels the same way as I do, and this was 6th century. <laughs> Mike, one of, the, one of the points that Hannah makes in her piece is that at high school in America, it was often the kind of alpha boys who'd wear a mullet, almost as a kind of statement of kind of their uh, status within the school. Is that something that you, that you noticed when you were at school? And is that, part, is that still part of the mullet's appeal? Again, I think it kind of depends on the wearer and, and the circles that it operates within. When I was in school, though, I mean, the mullet was pretty much dead in the water. Uh, I mean, that was early 2000s. That was kind of that that era when we had just gotten past our love affair with the mullet in the 90s. Uh, and you didn't really want to be caught dead with with one. Uh, and it became kind of a running punchline. And that's kind of where the Joe Dirt type of uh, quote unquote redneck characters came about. But again, you know, I really do think that it depends on the wearer, and that's one of the amazing things about the mullet is that it can mean so many different things to so many different people. <laughs> yeah. And are there hairdos that you think might be due a revival? Was there one that you think is sort of going to be the next trend? Well, you know, we we do see a lot of those early '90s, late '80s styles coming back. The curtains haircut is another one that is that is all over the place, and uh, the curtains haircut is that that kind of mid '90s Leonardo DiCaprio type of middle part. 
the front hangs down a little bit over the face and it's kind of short in the back. It's almost like a reverse mullet in a sense. Uh, so we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. The mustache is another style that I think a lot of men are adopting. And that was another late 80s, very early 90s thing that once it caught mainstream attention and everybody was wearing a mustache in the 90s, people moved away from it. But everything is kind of cyclical and they do come back. A crazy one I'll throw out there. I think the mutton chops are due <laughs> for, a, for a comeback. Um, a lot of times when we talk about style, we talk about this cycle and that, you know, things become trendy and then they hit a critical mass and people, particularly in younger generations, they abandon them and then they become uncool. And then there's a period of time where you just don't want to associate with that style at all. And then you get somebody, maybe it's an athlete or a celebrity who kind of starts to ironically wear this style. And then you get a few more celebrity endorsements and adoptions, and then suddenly it becomes trendy again. So I think the mutton chops are kind of still in that uh, in that ironic phase. Uh, Andy Carroll, the uh, Premier League soccer player, was wearing them last summer. That that'd be one to keep an eye on. <laughs> Hannah, how would you feel if next year at the at the ball all the teenage boys had mutton chops if they were able to grow well, them? Exactly, <laughs> I'd be very impressed if they could. <laughs> but I I do think that would probably be the one thing that would be worse than a mullet is the mutton chop, I'm happy, I have to say. Mike, do you think you could ever see something that's a combination of the sort of mullet hairdo and the mutton chops, or is that just a step too far? <laughs> well, it, you know, Austin, Texas has had a uh, slogan for the city for a long time called Keep Austin Weird. So there isn't <laughs> much in Austin that I haven't seen, and I, and I have seen a combination of a mullet and mutton chops. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah and Mike. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast... You can read everything we've talked about in the latest issue of the magazine. And if you become a subscriber today, you can get 12 weeks of the magazine for £12, delivered to your door along with a £20 Amazon gift card. I'm Laura Prendergast. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.